Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and yes, it is Bula Bula time in New Haven. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Trita Parsi about the geopolitical competition between Israel, Iran, and the United States. So how seriously are you taking the rumors that have an American strike on Iran? Uh, currently, I will take them extremely seriously because there's a tremendous amount of problems taking place right now, and um, there is an acceptance of false premises that is, again, driving the two countries towards uh, a conflict. And James Prosek, celebrating 10 years of the Yale English Journal. I think modern fishing is, lends itself to reflection because, you know, you're, you're kind of a mortal fisherman uh, walking into a stream. It's, it's one of the only things that forces you to stand in a river for hours at a time. And a river really is kind of like an immortal entity. It's flowing, 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 always flowing to the sea. Stay tuned. The rivalry between Israel and Iran goes back to the founding of Israel in 1948. But during this time, the rivalry is swung between open antagonism and secret cooperation. In his new book, Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran, and the U.S., Trita Parsi looks at this rivalry and at American dealings with both countries. Trita Parsi is president of the National Iranian American Council, an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Trita Parsi, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. Thank you for having me. In the introduction to your book, Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran, and the U.S., you discuss two customs, the Iranian custom of Taraf and the Jewish custom of Chutzpah. What is it about these two customs you thought was important enough to mention in your book? I don't know if I would necessarily call them customs, but they're two different cultural phenomenons that exist uh, in Israel and Iran. And it's one of those things that really differentiate the Iranians uh, from the Israelis, make them very different. And there's many factors that make these two peoples very similar, but this is one thing that really uh, is quite the opposite of each other. Uh, the Iranians have a custom that is called um, Tarof, which is a form of being polite. Uh, for instance, if someone invites you to dinner in Iran, you're supposed to say no at least two times before you accept. To accept immediately uh, is seen to be somewhat rude. Um, and this creates a, a system of uh, very sophisticated diplomacy in which uh, a lot of things are taking place, a lot of discussions are taking place very, very low below the surface. In Israel, you have something that is almost the opposite. You, you have the concept of chutzpah, uh, which, can, which can be translated as audacity, uh, whereas the Iranians work very hard to uh, avoid any categorical answers and prefer not to begin any answer with a no. The Israelis, I found it to be very uh, direct, uh, very upfront, um, and, and very, um, at times, black and white. Perhaps some of the nuances are lost, in the Israeli answers, whereas in the Iranian answers, there's so much nuance you don't really know what to focus on. 
In that answer, you mentioned briefly the similarities, and that's one of the things I really got out of this book is for all of the media talk about the conflicts between Iranian, uh, Iran and Israel, that the two cultures, Jewish and Persian, are actually have a lot in common. Could you talk a little bit about their similarities? Sure. There's a tremendous amount of similarities, and more than anything else, perhaps, there's a similarity in the way that they view the outside world. Uh, Iranians tend to view the outside world with a tremendous amount of suspicion. Um, they constantly feel that uh, their neighbors are out to get them, particularly the Arabs, and they feel that there's a deep-rooted enmity between them that is going to be extremely difficult to bridge. And it's born out of their experience of having fought numerous invasions, having fought colonization, having fought attempts by the West to make Iran dependent on Western economies, etc. And this has led the Iranians to conclude that they are the only ones that can really provide their own security. They cannot rely on any other state to provide them with security. And perhaps the most um, painful experience the Iranians had that led them to at least strengthen that conclusion was the Iran-Iraq war, in which virtually the entire world was supporting Saddam Hussein, and the Iranians were virtually alone in that fight. Uh, even though the Iranians had purchased a tremendous amount of American arms prior to the revolution, by the time the revolution occurred and the U.S.-Iran relations were going downhill, the United States refused to sell Iran any spare parts for, this, uh, for their air force, for instance, which made Iran completely uh, helpless against the Iraqi air force. The Israelis obviously have a very similar way of looking at the world, born out of the experience of the Jewish people over centuries and centuries of persecution, etc. And this type of a defense and security outlook in which they believe that they absolutely have to be able to defend themselves, they cannot rely on any other state to come to their help and come to their defense, uh, has created very similar types of uh, military doctrines and military outlooks. And it's actually part of the reason that it's very difficult to be able to find an accommodation between the two, because when two countries are pursuing the same type of very um, hostile defense posture towards the outside world, that in many ways invites conflict. So what are some of the specific goals where these two countries are rubbing up against one another? Well, you have a most fundamental issue in the Middle East right now that the Iranians refuse to recognize Israel. The Israelis do not recognize the Iranian government, neither does the United States. And more than anything else, we have a region in the Middle East that does not have a real security order. We're in the process of forming one. And when you're in the process of forming a security order, you will always see the most powerful states in that region being pitted against each other in order to make sure that they have a decisive impact on how the future order is going to look like. And that's part of the reason why Iran and Israel have been entangled in a rivalry since 1991, because that's when the old world order uh, broke down. There's two critical things that happened in that time span, which is that the Soviet Union collapsed, and we had an end to the Cold War. And Iraq, um, the last standing powerful Arab army, was defeated by the United States and its allies in the first Persian Gulf War. Both of these countries, the Soviet Union and Iraq, were seen as threats by Israel and by Iran. And this improved their security environment significantly, but it also made 
both of them unchecked. There was no longer an Iraq that could balance the Iranians. And slowly you see how the Israelis and the Iranians start to view each other as potential threats. Whereas prior to 1991, in spite of their ideologies, in spite of the Islamic Republic's uh, rhetoric against Israel, both countries viewed each other behind the scene as potential security partners and oftentimes did cooperate behind the scenes. And isn't that one of the main themes of your book is that for all of the Western media's portrayal of the conflict between Iran and Israel as greatly ideological, then in fact, if you look at beyond the surface, it's really much more real politic and geopolitics that, that work in this relationship. Absolutely, without a doubt, because when you study um, the major shifts that have taken place in Israeli-Iranian relations, they, these shifts have taken place due to geopolitical reasons, not due to ideological reasons. You have an intensification of the Israeli-Iranian rivalry and enmity in 1991, but that is a time when Iran's ideology and religious zeal was cooling significantly, and the Iranians were trying to reach out to the United States. In the 80s, however, when the Iranians were saying things that were far more um, aggressive than what the current Iranian president is saying about Israel, the Israelis were actually behind the scene lobbying on behalf or in favor of the Iranians in Washington, trying to get the United States to open up a dialogue with the Iranians. The shift occurred in 91 because of geopolitical changes, because of the defeat of Iraq and because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. If it had been ideology that was the driving force of this conflict, then the shift would have occurred in 1979, and we would not have seen the Iran-Contra scandal. The positive message of this, though, is that if this is seen as an ideological battle, then unfortunately that would mean that the, the conflict is unresolvable. You can only see one of these two actors come out on top of the other, and there would be some sort of a conflict. If it's understood, however, for what it actually is, which is a strategic rivalry, then you also have opportunities for resolving it without resorting to military conflict. And that's one of the things that is somewhat um, discomforting right now with one of the metaphors that a hardline Israeli uh, politician is um, portraying and, and presenting. Uh, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, is the leader of the Likud party, he is saying that it's 1938 and Iran is Germany and Ahmadinejad is Hitler. If you accept that premise, there's only one solution, and that's war. The premise, however, is false, and I think people who read the book will see exactly why that is the case. So how seriously are you taking the rumors that have an American strike on Iran? Uh, currently, I will take them extremely seriously because there's a tremendous amount of problems taking place right now. And um, there is an acceptance of false premises that is, again, driving the two countries towards uh, a conflict. One of those premises, for instance, is that if Iran has a small-scale enrichment program, that automatically means that Iran can have a nuclear bomb. That is not the case. There's several steps that the Iranians have to go through to be able to get to a bomb. There are several opportunities that through inspections and other means the international community can prevent Iran from uh, weaponizing. So accepting a small-scale enrichment program is not tantamount to accepting an Iranian nuclear bomb. And this could pave a way, the understanding of this could pave a way for a compromise. But when we assume that only two centrifuges in Iran is too much, we have to have zero enrichment, 
then that puts us in a zero-sum game in which conflict becomes rather likely. So do you think the Bush administration would ever reach out to Iran? Or are there too many structural problems within this administration to do that? I think right now there's too many structural problems with that, and uh, there seems to have been a deliberate decision to avoid uh, diplomacy uh, as long as possible, basically treating diplomacy as the last option which I think um, is in stark contrast to American tradition. I think American tradition is that war is the last option and diplomacy is the first option. Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran, and the U.S. is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Trita Parsi, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. Back in 2006, two undergraduates at Yale decided that their mutual passion, fishing, deserved its own campus publication. Since then, the Yale English Journal has turned into the world's premier literary journal devoted to angling. For its 10th anniversary, Yale University Press is pleased to release Tight Lines, 10 Years of the Yale English Journal. And I'll be speaking with James Prosek, one of the co-founders of the journal. James Prosek is an author, watercolorist, musician, and a Peabody Award-winning documentarian. James Prosek, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. So how did the Yale English Journal start? Well, it's uh, a good question. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was a junior at Yale, and I had just uh, published a book uh, called Trout and Illustrated History, and it was a book of 70 watercolor paintings that I'd done of different trout around North America, and I had um, accumulated some notoriety around campus as Trout Boy and um, for publishing this book, and that came out in April, and then sometime later that spring, um, a friend of mine in my dorm area, Brantford College, uh, Fran Furia, said that her cousin, Joe, was um, a senior in high school who'd gotten into Yale and he was visiting because he was trying to decide whether he wanted to go to Middlebury or Yale. And he wanted to go to Middlebury because there was a trout stream you could walk to from uh, campus. And he was a big fisherman and outdoorsman. And so, uh, but his father wanted him to go to Yale. So um, Joe's, uh, so Fran, his cousin, said, you know, do you think you could take Joe around campus and show him around, and he has your book, and he wants to meet you and stuff, and, and I said, sure, I'll take him around, and, and then his father called me and said, you know, I really want Joe to go to Yale, not knowing this guy at all, and, um, and he said, do you think you could try to encourage him to go to Yale, and I said, well, I don't want to influence his decision, but, um, you know, I'll take him around and maybe even take him fishing, so, so I... Uh, so Joe arrived one day, and um, I met up with him, um, and he had this backpack full of flies and this bamboo rod and all this equipment, and he had this whole study he'd done of Lake Washington near where he lived in the West Coast and um, about the birds and the fish that lived there, and he was a real meticulous observer and, like, kind of crazy amateur biologist <laughs> and kind of reminded me of my younger self. So we kind of, you know, hit it off and I took him around to some of my classes and he was a little bit afraid of sort of 
committing to four years in the more urban campus. And I said, you know, it wasn't that bad. And so in one of my classes, an architecture class, um, I said, well, maybe if you come to Yale, we could start a fishing journal or some kind of literary journal related to fishing and outdoor stuff. And we passed some notes back and forth in class. And by the end of the class, we had the title and everything, the Yale English Journal. And uh, so that summer, um, I got some friends to write some things and get uh, sort of gathered up submissions. And Joe sort of put the first issue together. And we got funding from a friend of mine, Nelson Donegan, who is a psychology professor. He put up the money for the first issue. And by that fall, we had the first issue, fall of 96, had the first issue of the Yale English Journal out there. So that's sort of how it came together. <laughs> so do you have any memories of the early issues? I mean, anything that sticks out in your mind? I, I mean, to me, it was a fun experience just because I asked people who weren't necessarily fond of writing to write stuff, like my best friend Taylor uh, Hoyt, and he wrote a piece about uh, hiking up in the Wind River Range fishing. And um, and it was nice to see that some really cool stuff came out of people who wouldn't ordinarily necessarily put things down on paper. Um, but, yeah, we had some fun meetings. You know, we'd meet in different dining rooms and um, discuss the journal and um, where we wanted it to go. And then later on we started having these fundraising dinners and, you know, trying to trying to make sure that it um, could live beyond its founders. And, you know, Joe was very um, kind of possessive of the... He wanted to make sure it was going to survive. He was adamant about it being an undergraduate publication. We both were. Um, and so there were there were quarrels between him and other people, and <laughs> which I tried to stay out of for the most part. But I, um, I mostly acted as sort of helping put a network of people together, Yale alumni who I knew um, who uh, were fishermen and fisherwomen. And it was, yeah, it was good. It was, a, it was a fun experience. So would you say that maybe now if one were going to the Yale campus, there's more of an angling culture than there was when you started as a freshman? Maybe more of an organized angling culture. In the old days, uh, before I um, was a freshman in 93, there was a fishing club at Yale, and there was a guy, Ed McDowski, who used to organize the, these um, entering Yale students in these like fishing tournaments and stuff. They used to go up to Nova Scotia and participate in bluefin tuna fishing tournaments. and So there was sort of a, a little history of that at Yale, but, but you know, the, the journal was never like an, an organized fishing club. It, it was more... It wasn't really about fishing as much as trying to put together some some decent writing and a nice, clean structure and having some some artwork some artwork dug out of the archives and the Beinecke Library, old etchings and stuff that either related or didn't relate to the the pieces and and just I don't know having a place where our mutual passion could be um, kind of written about. And, and at that point, I was pretty, pretty passionate fisherman. 
so what is it about the sport of fishing that you think leads to you know literary reflection or artistic reflection well i think that um you know it's really the fishing is i think we fish because fundamentally because we're predators and we evolved as humans to pursue and capture things ultimately kill them and eat them um, but even though we don't necessarily kill them and eat them anymore, a lot of fishermen now are catch and release fishermen. We still have this this instinct to pursue and capture things. And along with the predatory urge um, emerge simultaneously um, art and spirituality, I think, because in order to sort of deal with killing these things, um, we kind of wanted to justify it through or, or give thanks or be grateful. And, and also, art sort of evolved alongside predation because drawing something like in the early cave drawings in Lascaux, France and stuff, drawing your prey helps you learn that prey better. And um, if you can draw a bull and, and visualize where the best place to throw the, the lance at it is, um, or the spear or whatever, <laughs> then you're, you're a more efficient predator and you can survive better. So I think artistic expression, writing, all these things came out of, and, you know, the pursuit of, of a creature like a trout or anything came out of a survival need, but now it's just expressed without the end game being a necessary component. So that's kind of a convoluted answer, but <laughs> it may not make any sense. But I think modern fishing is lends itself to reflection because you know you're you're kind of a mortal fisherman uh, walking into a stream. It's it's one of the only things that forces you to stand in a river for hours at a time, and a river really is kind of like an immortal entity. It's it's flowing, 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 always flowing to the sea. And the, the rain brings the moisture back over the land, the clouds, and then the rain falls. And so it's like this endless cycle. And as a mortal fisherman walking into this immortal cycle and all the life buzzing around you and the solitude and the sound of the stream kind of um, obscuring... Um, the world, the rest of the human world, and the problems of day-to-day -day life, um, you can think more clearly and have a, um, a sort of foundation on which to think about things. Tight Lines, 10 Years of the Yale English Journal, will be on sale October 16th. To hear an extended interview with James Prosek, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. You know, it may be October right now, but the holidays are just around the corner, and it's never too early to start thinking about gifts for those people in your life. Fortunately, Yale University Press has you covered with the amazing Yale University Press book sale. Just go to www.yalebooks.com, click on the half-off sale banner over to the left-hand side, and you can pick out a whole slew of books, literally a slew of books, for those friends and family who love Yale University Press books. And I'm sure you have a ton of them. And if you don't, 
get some books, and start making some Yale University Press fans. For more information about this show, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondek. I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2007. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.